the Biden administration banned a sugar company based in the Dominican Republic from exporting sugar to the United States. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. The company with local ties to businessmen in West Palm Beach was penalized for allegedly using forced labor in its operations. A reporter provides insight on what that means for the workers. Also, it's Miami Art Week. Hundreds of art lovers are strolling through international satellite fairs and local exhibitions just in time to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Art Basel Miami. Finally, a Miami-Dade commissioner is calling out Florida International University's Cuban Research Institute for inviting an author to speak about her new book, Examining Cuban Advantages in the Federal Immigration System. All of that today on the South Florida Roundup after the news. I'm Wilkin Brutus, and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. The Central Romana Corporation, a sugar company based in the, in the Dominican Republic, was banned from exporting sugar to the United States after the Biden administration said it has information that, quote, reasonably indicates the use of forced labor in its operations. The sugar company is the biggest landowner and employer in the Dominican Republic. Their sugar is sold in the U.S. under the Domino brand. The news comes amid strains in the U.S.-Dominican relations, particularly when it comes to alleged discrimination against Haitians. Just this week, the State Department issued a travel warning for black and dark-skinned Americans traveling to the country, saying they might be racially profiled or arbitrarily detained. Joining us now is Sandy Tolan, a best-selling author, journalist, and professor at USC's Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism. Sandy, thanks for joining us. Hey, welcome. Good to be with you. How are you doing? Hey, all is well. I'm staying hydrated. Thank you. <laughs> uh, the Central Romana Corporation has long faced allegations of subjecting its workers to poor labor conditions. Sandy, could you give our listeners a little background on this company and these allegations? Sure. Uh, so Central Romana um, and Casa de Campo together, which is a, a luxury tourist resort, um, all within the 240,000 acres of, of Central Romana was purchased by the Fanjul family of uh, West Palm Beach in 1984. Um, Central Romana is the biggest landowner, as you mentioned, the biggest employer, huge political influence in the Dominican Republic and the US. Just for an example, Wilkin, the former president of Central Romana was also the vice president of the Dominican Republic, its foreign minister, its ambassador to the US. And in the U.S., uh, tens of millions of dollars from the Fanjul Corporation and affiliated groups have gone to U.S. politicians. Uh, the biggest recipient of the Fanjul and uh, Fanjul Corporation and affiliated groups' largesse is, unsurprisingly, Marco Rubio, Senator Rubio. But they've donated to both sides of the aisle. The Clintons have received uh, substantial uh uh, donations. Um, so its influence in the Dominican Republic, Florida, and Washington is, is almost beyond measure. And the return on investment has been huge too. By one agricultural economist estimate, tens of millions of dollars uh, just from the guaranteed price supports from the U.S. government, which pays you know a lot more than the world market price. price. But, but back to your background question, in the early 2000s, there was a Spanish-British Catholic priest named Christopher Hartley who came to the DR and began living amidst the cane workers on the plantation of another company known as the Vicini Group. And he went toe-to-toe with them for years, advocating for his poor parishioners who were cane cutters. Eventually, Hartley was driven out uh, by all manner of death threats under 
It was unclear exactly from who, but some years later, working with a former labor and State Department official named Charlotte Ponticelli, he succeeded in getting the Labor Department to begin monitoring visits to the cane fields. And it appears that the Vicini operation really cleaned some things up, but the Labor Department had no enforcement power. And a couple of federal officials told me that the Central Romana, the Fonhul controlled company, was considered the most resistant company to change. And that's when Reveal and then later Mother Jones um, had my uh, colleague, Dominican Haitian colleague, Euclides Cordero Noel, and I launch our investigation. That yeah. was and, and Sandy, and I think that's a now. that's a great way to sort of segue into that. Um, uh, again, thanks for um, uh, talking about the sort of Fonhul and, and Romana Corporation influences across the political aisle here. So, so Sandy was part of a two-year investigation on these allegations with his reporter partner, Euclides Noel, um, Cordero Noel, for Reveal, Mother Jones, and Intercept. Here's a clip from that investigation titled The Bitter Work Behind Sugar. Central Romana says it's poured millions of dollars into the Bates to improve living and working conditions. We're going to check that out. We're heading towards a Bate named Cacata, Las Cacata. Cacata is a place Central Romana calls a model Bate. We walk the quiet streets, laid out in a grid about a mile long in total. At first, we see small houses in tidy rows with dirt yards, families relaxing. The kinds of uplifting images promoted on Central Romana's website. But as we walk deeper into the Bate, we reach a grim-looking line of concrete barracks. And just beyond, we find two cane cutters sitting on a pair of broken plastic chairs. Euclides greets them warmly in their native Creole, and they invite us to join them. I'm calling the men Julio and Cardenas. They don't want us to use their real names out of fear of retaliation for talking with outsiders. And that's the case with most of the workers we meet in the Bates. Cardenas says on a good day, he can cut about a metric ton of cane. That's 2,200 pounds. And that one ton gets them a little over $3 from Central Romana. The company says it pays more than the national minimum wage, and younger men can cut more and make five, six, even eight bucks a day, but not Julio and Cardenas. If it's good, you can cut one ton per day. A lot of the sugar Julio Cardenas and their fellow workers cut ends up in the U.S. The men say they've been doing this kind of work for the past 40 years. They're way past retirement age. Cardenas is almost 80. But even though Central Romana deducts government pension funds from their paychecks, they say they've never seen one peso of it. Now, Sandy, the Central Romana Corporation have issued a statement via Twitter stating that over the last decade, they've invested millions of dollars into improving the working and living conditions of their employees uh, in the Bates. You reported on human trafficking and child labor in the Dominican uh, sugar industry in the in the 90s. Uh, what's changed since your previous investigation in the 90s? Well, uh, so when I was there 30 years ago with my then uh, reporting partner, Alan Wiseman, um, we, it was really shocking, uh, Wilkin. We saw people being put into barracks where they would lock, uh, uh, lock the barracks at night and have guys standing out there with shotguns. They had children 
working the fields as young as 14 years old or younger even. We met a 14-year-old who had been kidnapped by the Dominican military and dumped into a cane field run by the state sugar council at the time. Um, so, you know, actually when I went back uh, three years ago and began working with Euclides, who, by the way, grew up on one of these work camps, one of these bates, they call them, uh, it was to try to find Lulu Pierre to find out what happened to him. But uh, instead, we we found uh, other things. Now, clearly, the thing the conditions have improved in terms of child labor and in terms of the kind of forced labor that I saw in the '90s. But um, what the uh, the labor department had begun after a Catholic priest got involved, uh, Father Hartley got involved, the labor department had begun doing these uh, monitoring. Uh, annual and, and biannual monitoring trips, uh, but they had no enforcement. And so what's happened is that the, the notion of forced labor has really changed from just, um, you know, rec you know, forcing people that they couldn't leave the plantations. The International Labor Organization um, and, and uh, their standards are known as indicators, 11 indicators of forced labor are followed by the customs, U.S. customs, which does have enforcement power. And that's what's changed in terms of U.S. monitoring. U.S. customs in their, in their announcement uh, very recently, which was sparked in, in part by our reporting, found five indicators of forced labor called abuse of vulnerability, isolation, withholding of wages, abusive working and living conditions and excessive overtime. And especially for us, Euclides and I saw a lot of these really rough working and labor and, and living conditions. You had people mm. out in the fields with uh, torn uh, uh, torn um, overalls uh, that were supposed to be protective coveralls for uh, people who were spraying the crops, broken masks. Um, and a lot of people had fallen sick and fallen ill. And there was an, uh, a number of lawsuits against the Fonhul Corporation and Central Romana. And, and but we'll, also we'll talk what we about saw the, I'm sorry, is, go ahead. Is, I'm sorry? Yeah, yeah, go, go ahead. My apologies. Okay. I was, uh, we also just saw uh, people living in these really horrific conditions with no electricity or running water. You know, we people talked about uh, the inactive, uh, inadequate protective gear, as I mentioned. And every single family uh, we spoke to talked about the fact that their services, uh, for access to healthcare was extremely limited. And nearly every family talked about this mountain of debt. They they are paid so little that they had to borrow on an interest rate of ten percent per week. In other words. 500% annually. So um, the the company has said that it's made improvements and we did see evidence of, of painted houses. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, they appeared to rush to demolish some of the worst bates that had the worst conditions just before um, the State Department went to have a, a visit uh, a little over a year ago. So uh, it's possible that this action is going to spur greater uh, reforms, and that's what the company says in English. And, and Sandy, uh, in English, I, I, I hate to interrupt, do, but in Spanish, um, they they uh, have remained rather defiant in their Spanish statement. And, and Sandy, briefly, what did they have to borrow the money for? Uh, living expenses? Yeah, well, a lot of it's medical expenses. Uh, the, you know, people get sick. I, I met one guy who was a fumigator, and his brother 
had fallen ill. Um, he had been a cane cutter. He couldn't he couldn't go anywhere. He was just lying in bed all day. Um, and so this guy was borrowing money at 500% annual interest rate to just try to get treatment for his brother because his brother wasn't eligible. A lot of family members told us they're not eligible. There's a state-of-the-art hospital that Central Romana brags about, but almost every cane cutter we asked about it said, well, that's out limit, off limits to us, but they do market that state-of-the-art hospital to the tourists at the five-star resort of Casa de Campo. And, and, and these are these are needed. these are horrendous uh, details regarding the working conditions here. Um, is it a separate issue from the quote forced labor, legally speaking? Uh, well, it, it falls. I mean, I'm I'm not uh, claiming to be a forced labor expert. I'm not a lawyer. I don't work in enforcement, obviously, but as a as a witness to what's happening and knowing what the charges are, abusive working and living conditions, it seems to me that some of the conditions we saw, the working and living conditions, uh, given that those that was cited as one of the five indicators of forced labor, um, I think you could argue that that um, has something to do with it. Sandy, the, the Fonhul family, which resides in West Palm Beach, uh, an hour mm-hmm. north of here, uh, owns right. the Florida Crystals uh, Sugar Company. They also right. own 35% of the Central Romana Corporation. Have you heard from them about the company's uh, working conditions? Well, the Fonhul family uh, wouldn't talk to us. Uh, they are famously secretive. Uh, they rarely give interviews. Uh, the brothers, Alfonso and Pepe, live, as you said, in West Palm Beach in these seaside mansions. Um, you know, they they have a very famous, uh, although they're secretive, they're, they've been written up in the, in the so-called shiny sheet and other, uh, you know, uh, lifestyle publications for their yachts and their, you know, expensive hotel stays. They also host charity balls, doling out millions to charter schools and daycare centers. Um, but they would not talk to us. Um, you know, John McCain once called the family the first family of corporate welfare, the former now late senator. The Fundhold Company the Corporation did release a statement to us a while back when we were doing our reporting praising Central Romana as a highly respected corporate citizen in the Dominican Republic that, quote, takes pride in its reputation for civic activities and ethical business practices. Hmm. And Central uh, Romana put out a statement on their Twitter that says that they are willing to work with Dominican and American authorities to address the issue at hand. Is there any update to what is happening between Central Romana and uh, authorities so far? Yeah, Wilkin, that's a really good question, and it's a hard one to answer right now. I've been on the phone, you know, every day uh, at some length, and and you know, trading many and lengthy uh, WhatsApp messages and other messages uh, with people who um, are concerned for their own safety, uh, who are trying to get information. One thing that's clear uh, from the people we have been able to reach in the work camps, in the Bates, is they're being told not to talk to in outsiders, which could, uh, again, not being a labor expert, um, you know, official, uh, it could actually, it seems to me, exacerbate one of the five customs indicators of forced labor, which is isolation. 
But in the meantime, a lot of concerns about possible retaliation, possible threats, um, very vague at this point. One person wrote to me and said he was recently called an enemy of the state on a, a kind of, but it wasn't clear from who, some strange calls trying to get uh, other sources to talk, not knowing who those people are. So it's really hard to know exactly. But in the meantime, as, as you indicated, there are a lot of roundups, mass deportations, you know, even a report that there might not be enough cane cutters for the harvest, which is, is about to start. And then you mentioned um, the travel advisory, which uh, I've never seen anything quite like this, that that especially dark skinned black Americans would be advised to reconsider a trip to the Dominican Republic because of the possible encounters with immigration officials. I mean, this is pretty alarming. Yeah, it has certainly affected everyone, even folks in a diaspora. From the perspective of perspective of those in the Dominican Republic, uh, how does this ban affect their livelihoods? How, how much influence does this company have on life in the DR? Well, you know, as I mentioned earlier, they're, you know, the former president of, of Central Romana was the vice president of the country and held other posts, including ambassador to the U.S. So, you know, being the biggest landowner and the biggest employer, they are immensely influential in the DR as well as in the U.S., as I mentioned, and in Florida, of course. Um, but uh, it's, I think that a lot of people are outraged by this. Um, you know, there are many people who are not of Haitian descent who are also uh, shocked by the conditions in the um, in the camps, in the work camps, the bates. And there are a lot of, of people of, of conscience who, you know, want to improve it. Central Romana itself says it wants to improve. But I think it was interesting to see the distinction, Wilkin, between the rather conciliatory statement that Central Romana made in English just after the customs issued its its ban on imports um, and the one it made in Spanish when it said, we're proud of the work we've done over the last hundred years. And they didn't mention anything about about uh, being conciliatory. Uh, in fact, they do want to work with the United States officials and get this ban lifted, but I think it's going to take a while. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot more work to do. Sandy Tolan, a best-selling author, journalist, and professor of USC's Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism. Sandy, thank you so much for your time and detailed reporting. Thank you, Wilkin. I just want to give one more shout-out to to my friend and colleague, uh, Euclides Cordero Newell. Grew up on a bate. Haitian descent, Dominican citizen, and without whom, without his courage and uh, and great humanity, uh, you know, this this all this reporting would not have been possible. Thank you, sir. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Wilkin. Still to come, hundreds of art lovers are in town to celebrate Miami Art Week, which marks the 20th anniversary of Art Basel, Miami. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. It's Miami Art Week. Every year for one week, Miami transforms into the center of all things art, design, music, and culture. And this year, the flagship institution, Art Basel, turns 20. Hundreds of galleries, collectors, and art lovers are strolling through countless international satellite fairs and locally based art exhibitions throughout Miami-Dade. What's missing? The enthusiasm. 
around crypto and NFTs that dominated Art Basel last year. But the conversation surrounding how and why we produce and consume traditional and multimedia art remains strong. Joining us to talk about all things art and culture during Miami Art Week is Miami Herald reporter, art reporter, Amanda Rosa, and Miami-based multimedia artist, Marcus Blake. Amanda and Marcus, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Amanda, let's start with you. Um, In regards to the atmosphere surrounding Miami Art Week, it seems like enthusiasm surrounding crypto, NFTs, that had dominated Art Basel last year has calmed down after recent high-profile crypto scandals such as FTX and uh, the steep drop in in the NFT market. Is that a fair assessment? It kind of is. Um, It kind of depends on who you ask. I think in general, there have been, there's definitely less NFT-related events happening this year, and all the events that are related to Web3 and crypto have become a little bit more curated as opposed to this huge explosion that we've seen previously. Um, In terms of when you go to traditional art fairs like Art Basel Miami Beach and the Convention Center, when I went, I frankly didn't see that many NFTs on display at all. It's mainly just traditional, physical, actual artwork. Um, But in terms of artists who are big in the NFT space, they're still very excited about what the technology can do for their careers. Hmm. And, and Marcus, you're a multimedia artist. Uh, you're here in the studio with us. Thanks yes. for joining us. Uh, were you or are you invested in NFT crypto environment as an artist? Um, I did. I did get into it. Um, I have a couple of pieces still on OpenSea. And uh, um, moving into it, I thought about, you know, the whole digital aspect of art. And um, it's something to, you know, at least look into as an artist um, just to see where it can take you or take art in general but i do i have a couple pieces in it and and what are your assessment to uh, uh, amanda's perspective in terms of like you know the atmosphere sort of waned a little bit this year this year have you noticed that um i have some friends that are involved in the nft world and um she's been pretty busy every day since art valza has started so that world is still operating out there the nft they're still pushing it um but it, it does exist. So this feels sort of like a minor setback. It, it's the movement is still strong, yes, but perhaps this year is just a minor setback. Is definitely that uh, a setback in the NFT world, just because of the fluctuation. But they still believe, and they're still pushing it. Do, do you still believe as an artist? I'm a physical artist. You know, I really like being in the physical space, and uh, not saying I'm against the NFT, but I like physical work. I like to work with my hands and being in the third dimension um wow and 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 amanda early stages of the pandemic pandemic certainly made attending in-person art events difficult for many people how would you describe the atmosphere at the miami convention center did the gathering feel like a return back to normal during abnormal times oh yeah definitely a lot of people were very excited and happy to be back in person in previous years i believe last year uh fewer galleries were able to participate in art basel miami beach in general either because they couldn't travel internationally or they were like on hard times financially um and this year mark spiegler who was the global director of art basel said that this year in miami beach is the largest addition we've ever had because of the sheer number of galleries who are participating. And when I went, 
the other day, it was frankly kind of overwhelming. I got lost several times. It's a lot of people who are very excited, a lot of art collectors who are very busy buying art for millions and millions of dollars and galleries who are very happy with the turnout. And so economically, it's it's, it's so far a successful uh, event uh, to, to your estimation. Definitely. And uh, how would you describe the overall mood or theme evoked by the artists this year? Was it dark? Was it light? Was it a, a mixture of both? It's definitely a mixture of both. A lot of the artwork that really stood out deals with themes of either climate or identity. There was one artwork in particular, I forget the artist's name off the top of my head, but if you go to the Meridian section of Art Basel, you'll see it. You can't miss it. It's this huge installation that's entirely bedazzled. It's like um, those telephone poles with the wires and there's uh, bedazzled sneakers with flowers coming out of them. And that artwork is reflective of the, just the year 2020 and how many lives were lost, both in terms of racial injustice and also the pandemic itself. So artists are definitely reflecting on the darker themes of the last year, but there's a hopeful undertone. And, and I'll pose the same question to you, Marcus. Um, how would you describe your overall mood as an artist um, in 2022? Um, I'm I'm still hopeful, you know, like I said in the beginning, I'm, I'm a colorful person. I and uh, I look forward to, you know, making things bright and uh, um, extravagant. And I, I don't know. I think 2022, um, um, I, I guess I guess what's what inspires you um, as an artist? Like when I see your work on these buildings, it's intricate. Um, it, it's, it's colorful there's all sorts of different it seems like influences in your work um and so what what has inspired you in 2022 as an artist i feel like i'm like an antenna i just uh, i'm just absorbing uh, the environment and it, i process it it's really hard to say like as an artist it's uh i look at myself as a creator so i'm really just uh absorbing and processing the world around me it's not think saying that I need to create anything in particular um, as I absorb my environment I then you know regurgitate it into the streets being colorful because of the um, I don't know that's just the grittiness of the streets sometimes and being in that space it's you need to see the world for what it is or how you would like to see it so just being more expressive and I don't know if I could, I would paint my whole entire neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. I see the ge geometric shapes uh, on buildings and I'm sure it's, a, it's quite the experience uh, to do that as an artist, but as a viewer, as a consumer of art, it's very interesting to know what went through the thought process, the sort of flow state in the artist's mind when they're creating these geometric patterns. You know, I think um, I'm just truly in the moment. There is no, um, like pre, uh, precursor of how to get it done uh it's i think it's like it's really like nature you can plant a seed in the tree it will do what it needs to do and it's the same i can show up on a sidewalk and i'm i'm instantly inspired to do it you know uh, i could start with one line and then from that line just keep expanding in the pattern but it's not i'm not really trying to think about where things need to go it's just i'm i'm going to do it 
because right. I'm, I'm in the moment and that's really my formula i, I it's and, and not that's, and that's always hard to describe to someone who yeah. isn't creating your art how it's processed but you know you're you're in the flow state uh, amanda of course art basil celebrates established artists such as jeff coons pablo picasso etc were there any new emerging and mid-career artists that stood out for you Yes, and at several art fairs. Um, someone who stood out to me a lot at Art Basel in particular is an artist from Ghana. I believe his name is pronounced Omoako Boafa. His portraits, which are really beautiful, are I saw them all over the place. Um, at Scope in particular, which is also on Miami Beach, there is a digital artist from Nigeria who goes by the name Osinachi. Osinachi. Um, and he's really interesting. His work is sold on the blockchain as NFTs because it's digital and he makes his artwork out of like Microsoft Word. Um, and yeah, there's Cornelius Tella who has an event in Wynwood. He's working with um, an Everglades organization and he's bringing the Everglades to Miami. And there is another Miami based artist um, named Mark Florador, who has a really amazing show called Sunshine at Young Arts. I'm Wilkin Brutus. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm speaking with Miami Herald's art reporter Amanda Rosa and Miami-based multimedia artist Marcus Blake. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Uh, now, the Hampton Art Lovers and Point Comfort Art Fair in Overtown has an art exhibition and conversation series at the historic Ward Rooming House. And they're celebrating uh, the remnants of lost African tr traditions through black artwork collected by Hampton University uh, Museum and Florida Memorial University. And it features Florida artists uh, such as Tiffany Glenn. Uh, Amanda, what were some of the satellite fairs that really stood out for you outside of the more popular places such as the design district miami beach were there any popular spots that that are sort of in the outskirts of those popular areas i haven't been everywhere yet so i'm excited to go to the places that i'm about to mention i'm definitely going to check out point comfort in overtown there is another art event that's that's dedicated to black art in opalaka called uh, art of transformation um in the design district it's not a fair but it is like an independent um smaller arts group they put on a show called boil toil and trouble um there's a new york-based artist named Nereria patricia patricia um she made a whole fountain like that's inspired by primordial waters so i'm definitely going to check that out and also our local museums are having really cool shows that are going to stay on you know, well after uh, Miami Art Week and uh, Didier Williams, who is originally from Miami, has a show at the Museum of Contemporary Art in North Miami. Yeah, very fascinating. There's also places in Opelika, like you said, Overtown. I know Mikhail Solomon's Prism Art Fair is also in the design district. So much, so many different satellite fairs that are occurring outside of the main uh, Miami Convention Center. I do have a question in regards to trends. Uh, years ago, glass art was huge. Uh, video art in more recent times. Are there significant trends you're seeing this year, Amanda? And I can pose the same question with you, Marcus, after Amanda. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think artists are getting very creative in terms of digital art, which is always exciting because usually when people think of like digital art or NFTs now, you, you may think of, you know, the 
kind of infamous board ape yacht club gorilla things but i'm seeing some really cool and insightful artwork in the digital space i'm also noticing just a lot of sparkly and shiny things uh which i don't know maybe i just noticed that because it looks pretty to me but i'm definitely <laughs> noticing the brighter things yeah i know artist reginald o'neill uh, in overtown has a qr coded mural on the International Longs uh, Shoresman Association building in Overtown. And essentially you can scan that QR code and then uh, read and, and take in the contributions of the black longshoresmen in Overtown. Um, Marcus, you describe your artwork as tapenology from what I've read. Um, so we're talking about trends, but are you for trends or are you for bucking trends? Um, it's actually called tapenology. Tapenology. Yeah, because I work with a lot with uh, tape, uh, 3M tape, different sizes. And, you know, the work looks really technical. Um, but to I don't know, re repeat that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we were talking about uh, certain trends that uh, uh, Amanda. Yeah, uh, yep. so... Um, Trend-wise, I'm not really, uh, I wouldn't say I follow any trends. And my thing is to really to push my mind as far as I can push it to come up with, you know, something new. There might not be anything new under the sun, but it feels good to, to try, you know. And, uh, you know, um, the streets right now, I would say there's a lot of uh, maybe, I won't say political, but more moving away from like traditional canvas work to more three-dimensional objects, the NFTs, just, I think, pushing the boundaries of imagination, creativity to see what else can be done outside of a canvas. So, so when I think of tape, I think of something that's tangible. Um, are you using the tape as a sculpture material? Uh, the tape is, um, I tape it and then, you know, remove the tape and then it leaves a negative space. So, um, but yeah, 3M tape, masking tape, different sizes of tape. Um, that it's not really about the tape. The tape is just used as what it's for is to mask it. And then as you color over it and remove it, it makes a, a negative space. And did you always set out to be an artist? Obviously, folks ask artists all the time, how did you create this work? What's the meaning behind your work? But what's the meaning behind your journey as an artist? Was this something you've always wanted to do? See, I, I have, yeah, like this, I have this conversation about being an artist often, and I still can't consider myself an artist. I really think I'm just a very creative person. An artist, I think, is someone who's like, uh, has a practice of one particular thing they've, they're trying to master. I'm trying to just master being as creative as possible. Not to say that, you know, the tape work, if I only did tape work, I feel like that would be my art. But, you know, the, my art is my life of being creative and, you know, manifesting realities and morphing reality in front of me, you know, by uh, through the canvas work or taking the work to the street to then um, change people's perspective, turning something gray and dark into something you know bright so it there is no i don't know that definition is really tricky with me being an artist you <laughs> right know. And, and amanda i'll pose the same question to you obviously you're the art reporter but you clearly have the eyes for art would you consider yourself an artist as well or are you more um comfortable just reporting on it what, what's your take Oh yeah, I've actually, I was an artist before I was a writer. When I was younger, I was very big into drawing and painting. My parents put me in like every single art class you could think of in the South Florida area. 
Um, and I didn't get into journalism and writing until I was in high school because I realized I was actually very good at it. So that's why I stuck to it. Um, but I consider, honestly, journalism to be an art in a way because it's an art, not a science. There's so many different ways to go about it and approach it. Um, writing, even if you're writing about current events, is an art in and of itself. And um, so, yeah, that's that's my take. All right. Amanda Rosa is Miami Herald's art reporter and Marcus Blake is a Miami based multimedia artist. Amanda, thank you so much for your time. Marcus Blake, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very thank much. You. I appreciate it. Still to come, a Miami-Dade commissioner called out Florida International University's Cuban research over a book examining Cuban privilege in the federal immigration system. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Newly elected Miami-Dade Commissioner Kevin Cabrera, who represents areas such as Core Gables and Hialeah, is calling out Florida International University's Cuban Research Institute for inviting an author to speak about a new book that examines the advantages that federal immigration law granted Cuban immigrants who came to the United States. Quote, hate-filled, inflammatory, anti-Cuban are words that Cabrera, the son of Cuban immigrants, used to describe Boston University's Professor Susan uh, Eva Exen, new book, Cuban Privilege. Eckstein told WLRN's America's editor, Tim Pageant, that her book is an academic exploration of how U.S. policy has treated Cuban immigrants as compared to treatment of immigrants from other countries, such as Haiti. He joins us now to discuss this topic. Tim, thank you for joining us. How you doing, Wilkin? I'm sorry for butchering her last name there. Eckstein. (laughs) Eckstein. There we go. Um, First, what does the academic book seek to examine? Uh, What's the overall premise? Well, first, I need to say I have not read the book. Uh, which is important here because uh, we need to note that uh, Commissioner Cabrera is making these accusations without himself having actually read the book. Uh, what I know about the book is an excerpt I've read and plus my conversation this week with Susan Eckstein, who's, who's a sociologist at Boston University, as you pointed out. And the premise of the book is simply to look at the, the largely Cold War immigration uh, privileges, benefits, advantages, as you called them, that, that, that Cuban immigrants got uh, because they were escaping communism, uh, Fidel Castro in Cuba, and uh, the benefits that they did receive, the sort of immigration fast track uh, that they received was, was a result of this, this Cold War milieu at, at, at that time. And uh, what her book examines, she tells me, is how, uh, one, on, the, on the one hand, how Cuban-Americans did a very impressive job parlaying those advantages into becoming one of America's most successful uh, immigrant groups, politically and economically. But also it examines uh, how other immigrant groups got shortchanged in the process, like, like Haitians, like Central Americans, and asks... A, was that fair? And B, what can the country do to make amends for that by trying to extend those kinds of privileges to more groups other than just Cubans? And so she's not coming from an advocacy 
point of view. She's coming from an, from an academic. No, she she insisted in our, in our conversation that this was not an anti-Cuban book. She was ex- simply ex- examining the dynamic of how those privileges work for one group and how they were sort of uh, uh, not afforded to, to to other groups and and how that dynamic has affected immigration policy and and American society in, in the aftermath. Based on evidence that's clearly publicly already exactly. Available. But 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 she, she insisted though that much of her book is largely complementary of of Cubans, which is one of the ironies here. Yeah. Uh, some people in Cabrera's district may not know the policies that help Cubans. Does she mention a specific policy that helped shape Cuban migration to Florida? Well, I think that the, the policy that everyone who does research on this uh, issue uh, points to is the 1966 Cuban Adjustment Act, which, as I said before, uh, gave Cubans a sort of a fast track to legal residency once they got here in the United States that, again, that was not afforded to other uh, immigrant groups. And, uh, you know, if, if, if you're here for a year, for example, as, as a Cuban uh, migrant, uh, you are essentially put on that fast track to legal residency and, and ultimately citizenship here, which is just not the case for any other migrant group in this country. And, and if you've read those those facts, uh, that fast track was called wet foot, dry foot. Well, policy, wet foot, dry foot was sort of an, uh, uh, an addendum to the Cuban Adjustment Act. Uh, this was during the, the, the sort of Cuban migration crisis in the 90s when you know, the rafters and, and, and when they were coming here. Um, what the U.S. did was come up with this policy that said if, if a Cuban touches dry land, automatically, you know, gets to stay here. But if they're, if they're, inter, if they're interdicted at sea, then they're sent back to Cuba. So before President Obama left office, what, what did he... Uh, disregard at that time. Well, he, what 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 he essentially did just before he left office in 2017 was get rid of that wet foot, dry foot policy, um, and and ironically, again, he he was doing that not just you know. Uh, in isolation, there were actually Cuban American politicians here, including Ileana Ross Layton and Marco Rubio, who really sort of agreed with getting r- rid of wet foot, dry foot. Hmm. Um, is she in any way criticizing Cubans for taking advantage of special U.S. immigration and and what came out and what came with it? the political and economic success stories in the past 60 years? Well, no, again, I mean, having not read the book, I can't say this, you know, 100% for sh- for sure. Uh, all I can, re- again, refer to is my conversation with her, but she insists that the book, uh, as, as I mentioned, congratulates Cubans for taking those advantages that they were given and and turning them into one of America's most uh, impressive immigrant community success stories. I mean, when you look at the political clout, for example, I mean, you may criticize Cubans for having received those special privileges, but you got to take your hat off to them for becoming, when they did become citizens so quickly, they went out and voted. And I have always taken my hat off to Cubans for that. And, you know, so, and I think her book, at least the way she's explaining me, does, you know, again, give them their props for that. Um, In your recent commentary, you mentioned uh, the exile orthodoxy. Um, The history behind Cuban special U.S. immigration status isn't new, but why is it difficult for people, even academics, to talk about that particular policy? Well, because you have to look at, as you as you aptly put it there, the 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 conservative Cuban exile orthodoxy, as as I called it in the commentary. Um, Conservative Cuban exile orthodoxy has always objected to two notions here. The first is that Cubans were somehow uh, allowed to cut the U.S. immigration line, let's say, that they became um, such a successful immigrant community here because they got special privileges. The conservative exile orthodoxy finds that insulting. 
The second notion um, it objects to is that Cubans somehow received immigration privileges they didn't deserve or that other immigrant groups like Haitians or Central Americans deserved as much as they did. Conservative exiles often um, find that notion objectionable because it suggests that they that 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 they that then they're not the special exile group they believe Cubans are and should be. Hmm. And, and this has been documented extensively uh, in WLRN's new podcast, Detention by Design. Um, did FIU's Cuban Research Institute respond to Cabrera's criticism at all? Oh, yes. Uh, Jorge Duani, the the uh, uh, the director of, of the, the, the Cuban Research Institute there at FIU, I think he responded the way, uh, you know, anyone in his shoes should have responded, which was simply to invite Commissioner Cabrera to come to the event and listen to uh, Professor Eckstein's explanation of her book uh, and, and uh, you know, Give it, give it a, a little, afford her a little bit more of a, a you know, a, 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 an educated, let's say, uh, appreciation of what she's trying to say in this book rather than just condemn it and demonize it again without even having read it. Right. Have that dialogue, have that open exactly. um, dialogue. In terms of politics, Commissioner Cabrera was endorsed by former President Donald Trump. Um, what does Commissioner Cabrera seek to gain politically? by criticizing her well i i think he, he in his district he uh, stands to gain quite a lot politically because of uh what i was just mentioning here this this conservative cuban exile orthodoxy uh permeates a lot of the district that he represents and so by just sort of peremptorily going after you know to attack you know this this book the way he has um, that plays really well <laughs> in yeah. in in District Six in Miami Dade County. And, and of course, former President Donald Trump reversed Obama's policies, easing trade and travel restrictions on right. Cuba. Um, I can't help but notice the irony here as well. Could this be viewed as a blatant attempt to censor book readings? Uh, of course, I think Commissioner Cabrera would would obviously. Um, would obviously uh, disagree with that. Although, when, when, whenever a, a, a particularly a Cuban American politician does something like this, y you have to, you know, you have to make that analogy, and you also have to wonder how much does this. <laughs> really start to look similar to, for example, what the committees for the defense of the revolution do back in Cuba when they try to ferret out anti-communist heresy, for example. It, it, it looks a lot alike and it's and it can it can get scary uh, in that sense. But I think more than anything else, uh, this this is just an attempt by Commissioner Cabrera to score big political points in his district. This attack on this book or this criticism on this book got him on the front page of the news. Uh, but, but it may also bring even more attention uh, right. to the book itself. Oh, no, no, no. I, <laughs> Politically, is this a win or a loss for him? And is this a win for her? I think I, I think you can make the case this is a win win. It's a win for him politically. It's a it's a win for her as an author, because I think what he has done for her. And this happens so often when we see. Uh, the, these kinds of attacks and, and condemnation of books, the book actually really benefits from this kind of attention. And I think she's going to get a lot more people coming out to this book presentation that's scheduled for next Friday at Books and Books in Coral Gables than perhaps would, would have come out had Commissioner Cabrera not you know, right, right. gone on the attack the way he did. I think, I think yes, she's going to benefit from this, ironically. Yeah, and, and I didn't know the book was coming out until this controversy. <laughs> <So> Me too. <laughs> um, do, do you think... Um, 
Yeah. Do Do you think protests will happen at that book reading? I don't know. I think I I don't know. I have. I think it's telling that you haven't seen Commissioner Cabrera sort of respond to the to the backlash against him, for example, here. I mean, I'm not the only one who's, who's written uh, against what he, he did this week. Fabiola Santiago over at uh, the Miami Herald had a very strong uh, opinion column herself, uh, um, sort of condemning his condemnation of the book. So I, I don't know if, you, if we are gonna see that fervor bubble up uh, for next Friday's presentation. It'll be interesting to see if we do see demonstrations outside books and books. Very briefly, let's segue into the World Cup game All that's right. happening today. A little unexpected cross-cultural solidarity between Haitians and Brazilians. Mm-hmm. Brazil plays, uh, Brazil is facing Cameroon today at 2 p.m. And some people might be quite surprised to see Haitians sporting Brazil's national colors of green and yellow and cheering just as loud mm-hmm. as Brazilians. You've been covering Latin America for a long time. What do you make of Haiti's love affair with Brazilian soccer? I think it resembles a love affair that a lot of the rest of the hemisphere, a lot of the rest of Latin America and the Caribbean has with Brazil. Brazil has become, but especially for Haitians, as you point out, has become the proxy team. A Seleção, as the Brazilian team is, is known. It has become the proxy soccer team for a lot of the, the hemisphere that doesn't have their own great teams. I mean, you know, Argentina's got a great team, Uruguay, Mexico, et cetera. They, but when you look at countries like Haiti that don't have, you know, great high-profile soccer teams, even my wife's country, Venezuela, uh, which is a baseball country, they, they've always been fans of Brazilian soccer. And so that's why you're seeing uh, groups like the Haitians come out for their team, the, the Brazilians. And they come on in force for a long time. In 2016 Copa America uh, champion, Championship, Brazil defeated Haiti 7-1. to one. Mm-hmm. Uh, But that one goal by Haiti was massive for the Caribbean, whose team has always been under finance. Um, and, and so Brazil has been seen as a sort of default picture of excellence. Uh, so that bond is always there. And also a, a default picture of what Haitians consider themselves in many ways, the underdogs. One of the high, one of the hallmarks of the Brazilian soccer team is that it is always represented. It is its most famous players, like Pele, a, 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 a black Brazilian, for example, from the favelas, the slums. It has always represented the underdogs in Brazil, and I think that's another reason why Haitians, you know, tend to, you know, uh, because they consider themselves in many ways the underdogs in this hemisphere often. And I think that's another reason why Brazilian soccer. Uh, they why they have a bond with that. A lot of underdog stories happening right now. Korea just beat Portugal. Japan is doing well. Japan. Uh, this has been an interesting story, World man. Cup right now with these Cinderella stories, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Tim Paget is WLRN's America's editor. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Really Thanks, appreciate it. Thanks as always, Wilkin. All right, that would do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Tway. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Our interim managing editor is Katie Munoz. Jessica Bakeman is the senior editor for news. Matt Sanchez is the digital editor. The vice president of radio and show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mayers. Richard Ives answers phones. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Thanks for calling and listening. And remember, stay hydrated. WLRN Public Media.